0: would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John 14. And I want to read in your hearing, verse 12 to verse 14. John 14, and we'll begin the reading at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, Our text for this morning is probably an indication that John's gospel is not about to get any easier for us. John delights in presenting verses and words that are troubling. A lot of times his words have double meanings, they're a bit ambiguous, know exactly what he's getting at, and they're words that really require of us a great amount of thought and contemplation. Uh, We need to give ourselves to the effort of digging a bit deeper into the text of Scripture. And you know, it's when we do that, it usually does produce great rewards. One of the things that uh, was said in the 4th century controversy over the deity of Christ when the heresy of Arianism came to light and was opposed by Athanasius of Alexandria, and ultimately they had the Nicene Council, and it was determined that the church was going to defend the teaching of the deity of Christ. That one of the things the pro Trinitarian Christians would say is that there's a distinction between what they called the sound of the scriptures and the sense of the scriptures. They were saying, don't be content with a surface and a superficial reading of the scriptures. Scripture may sound as if it was saying something that on longer and deeper reflection and bringing in the rest of the testimony of the word, we find, uh, no, it may sound that it's saying, like it's saying that, but really it is not. The sense of scripture is scripture as we take it as a whole, and that must prevail if we would come to sound and sensible readings and understandings of the word of the living God, because here's a passage that sounds as if our Lord Jesus might be saying that his people who believe on his name should be expecting to do even greater miracles than he performed in the days of his ministry on the earth. Or, it could be saying, it sounds like it's saying, anything we ask in his name, he's going to do. Man, that opens up uh, the whole world for our... Fulfillment of our desires. What kind of car do you want? What kind of house do you want? What should we ask of the Lord that we'll would simply fill our, our our coffers with more money and our retirement funds with more uh, more cash? And uh, no, is that what it's saying? Well, again, the sound is one thing, but the sense of the passage is and can be a bit different. I mean, think about it there's a little bit of reflection would soon convince us that these these meanings can't be what Jesus is saying because simply no one ever lived after Jesus who could speak to the winds and the waves and say be still and the winds and the waves obeyed them. Whoever did that? Where is that paralleled in all of the history of the world? No one since Jesus ever walked upon the sea. Where's there a parallel to that that's not utterly ridiculous and fraudulent? No one, since Jesus, has ever fed a multitude of 5,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. You see, his miraculous works that Jesus did in the days of his flesh are simply unparalleled in all the history of the world. Now, what do you do with the text? And we might observe, it's never been paralleled, but still the text seems to say that uh, if we believe, we'll do greater works. What do these words not only not mean, what do they positively mean? Well, I want to try to explain the meaning of our Lord's words. At least I think they're likely meaning. by doing the following with you this morning. First of all, we want to address the meaning of the works Jesus is speaking of. What are these works? Jesus says, he that believes in me, greater works then these will he do. He'll do the works that I do, and greater than these will he do. Secondly, we want to say something about uh, why these works he, said, he speaks about are greater, why they're described as being greater, and then finally, the manner in which these greater works are to be performed. And I think if we get through these things with some measure of uh, understanding, uh, we'll probably reread the passage and maybe see it in a clearer light. Let's begin. In the first place, our Lord is speaking of works that he has done, which believers in him will do. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater than these will he do. Now one of the ways in which we could easily dispense with the passage is to say, well, these are words that Jesus speaks to a group of people called apostles. And the apostles are being spoken to here as apostles and not as believers. However, the problem is, the passage does say, not just he who serves me as an apostle, is as whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. You might argue that. Well, he's talking to those that believe in him who were believing apostles. And then you can go to the book of Acts and say, look, apostles did great works, but they didn't walk on water, and they didn't still the winds and the waves, and they didn't do miracles of feeding like Jesus did. Um, But Jesus clearly does speak of works that he has performed, which he says are to be the basis of the faith of the hearers. Remember, he said, Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In John's Gospel, these miracle works are called signs. And signs are things that signify something of else, something of a greater reality. What do these miracles signify? Well, these miracles signify that Jesus is one with his Father. It signifies that these are the works of God. These are the works that God is doing in and through him and which he himself is doing because he is incarnate deity. The Father is in him and he is in the Father. And these are works that testify to that reality of Jesus' identity as the eternal Son of who possesses an eternal relationship with his Father of the deepest kind of identity, intimacy, and interrelatedness. That's what we looked at last week in the earlier part of John 14. And um, Jesus says, you should believe this. Have I been with you so long, Philip, and do you not know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. You should believe this, Philip, because of the things you've seen and the things that you've heard of me. You've seen the works I've done and you've heard the words I've spoken. And you see, the words that I've said to you and the works that I've performed performed before you are two things that are of the closest connection in Jesus' mind and in Jesus' words. Again, remember what he said in the words of verse... 16, I'm sorry, verse 10. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He says, the words that I say to you, here are spoken words, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me doesn't speak his words, but he performs his works. He does his works. Words that are spoken and works that are performed, Jesus places in the closest proximity to one another. Again, because we're dealing with a God who speaks worlds into existence. Right? God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God is the God of creation whose authoritative words perform mighty works. Works of creation. Works of providence. Works of redemption. Jesus does I'm sorry, the Father does his works through the words that Jesus speaks on his authority. So What does that mean with respect to Jesus? Well, we behold him, for instance, in chapter 11, speaking words, do we not? The words that he speaks. He doesn't speak on his own authority. What are the words, such words that he speaks on the Father's authority? Well, how about Lazarus come forth? Lazarus come forth. What's happening there? Well, there's more than just that Jesus articulates verbally words. There's the unleashing of the mighty power of God in resurrection life, to take the dead corpse of Lazarus, stinking for four days, and to bring him out of his tomb. What's that? That's, well, again, the power of creation at work. The power of a new creation. The power that gives life to the dead. And so the words of Jesus... Become the works of Jesus that constitutes life giving power, the life giving power of a new creation. He says, Winds and waves, be still. And we can speak those words to the end of the world, and it's not going to stop the wind from coming down on this building as the winds do with almost horrific force. There are times the winds come off of that mountain. You can't open that door and get out of the church. You gotta wait for the wind to die down. I wish I could stand at the door and say on the power of Jesus and the authority that Jesus gives me as his believer. Winds be still. And I could say those words, but it's not going to lead to the works of the winds being stilled. Those are miracles that are signs of the greater reality of God entering into this world. You're the person of his son bringing about a new creation. And it's, this, and it's the miracles that are signs of it. But you see, they're only signs of a greater reality. Because the miracles themselves aren't saving. People can experience miracles as one did in the fifth chapter of the verse of this, of, of this book. And Jesus said to him, go your way and sin no more lest a, a worse thing happen to you. That doesn't sound like Jesus is talking to a believing man. And Some people say, well, it's according to your faith that healings are given. Well, There's a man who didn't seem to be believing at all, and yet Jesus healed him. And Jesus says, be careful that you don't do things that will bring a worse thing to come upon you. Now, see, you see, miracles are not just um, a sign of faith. It's a sign that God has entered into the world with saving power. That God has come to bring a new creation. Read the 35th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Maybe we'll do it. Maybe we'll do it. Just to cement this idea in your mind. I'm not just pulling it out of my own brain. But here in the 35th chapter, we see the picture of a new creation. That's one of the things that Isaiah abounds in. He, in fact, he concludes uh, his prophecy in chapter 65 and 66 with what? A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's almost the same way the book of Revelation ends with the new Jerusalem that God forms in the new heavens and new earth. But here, that's pictured in the 35th chapter, where we read that the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Now language like wilderness, language like dry land, is usually the sign of God's curse. When God comes upon the holy land to bless it, it's a land filled with milk and honey, that flows with milk and honey. It's a land in which the crops prosper, and everything is abundant. The abundance of, of God's peace and favor and goodwill rests upon the land. But now God's going to bring about in A nation that's been cursed because of its sin. New blessing. The blessing of the land restored. The blessing of favor coming back to the desert. Blossoming abundantly. The glory of Lebanon, not just Israel. This is a new creation. It's not just the restored Israel. It's a new creation. The glory of Lebanon to the north will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel. And Sharon they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And then it, what follows this picture of the of a renewed creation is strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, "Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance with the recompense of God, He will come and save you." But what will happen when God does this? When he renews the earth? What will happen when God says to the anxious heart, that um, be strong and fear not, when he will come and save us? Well, he says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool so you see the whole picture of this restoration of creation is one in which all of the evils of a fallen world will be remedied he comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found And so when John the Baptist begins to be troubled in the prison and he sends his his disciples to ask, are you the one that we were expecting or, or do we wait for someone else? Remember Jesus' response? You go and tell John the blind are seen, the deaf are hearing the lame are walking, the poor are having the gospel preached to them. And what's Jesus saying? That Jesus will know by these works that God's salvation has come. You're not looking for another. God's come It is Son to bring about this new world that Isaiah speaks of. This new creation that Isaiah speaks of. And part of the evidence of God doing that is that his Son comes into the world doing these great works. Doing these great works. But again, ultimately, what brings salvation to people? Is it mighty works? Jesus speaks of a time when people will come before the judgment throne and say, Lord, have we not done mighty works in your name? Haven't we cast out demons? haven't we done all these things and Jesus will say to them depart from me ye cursed I never knew you you are workers of iniquity see here are miracle workers who aren't even saved you can do miracles and still not even be a Christian this God is a God who seems to be intent in displaying in New Testament times that he has come in redemptive power to save a world in which he unleashes through the words of his servants like the apostles and of course Jesus preeminently, words that bring about these mighty works words that bring about the greater reality of the dawning of a new creation and so the disciples are sent forth into the world by Jesus. Not so much to be miracle workers, but to be preachers. To preach God's word. That Jesus is sending these disciples into the world to do these greater works. As sending them to preach the life-giving word. The greater works is the fruit of the life-giving word. It's not just whether you raise the dead. You can raise a man from the dead, but he's still going to die. Remember that guy Eutychus, that Paul, when he came to Troas, preached the word of God till midnight. I won't get away with that if I ever tried that stunt. But he preached till midnight, and the guy sitting in an upper window fell down with slumber. He crashed to the earth, and he was dead. And Paul went and stood over him and did an Elijah thing, covered him with his body, and he was raised from the dead. It would appear, you want to go visit Eutychus? <laughs> he's not living. He died. Yes, he was raised from the dead, but it was a temporary thing. He's dead, and he's, his body's still awaiting the resurrection of the dead. It's not miracles that the Church is to be focused upon. It's the power of the gospel that raises the dead from spiritual death to spiritual life. When you think about what's going on in the upper room where Jesus is giving these instructions to these disciples and seeking their comfort, is there, who, who's meeting there in that upper room? Oh well, well, we know there's at least eleven people there. Um, Judas has left. There may have been others that we don't read about, that attended that meal. After Jesus' resurrection, it appears that they went back to the upper room, and they had in chapter 1 prayer that was given. But then we're told there were 120. 120 in the upper room. Now there may have been other disciples in Galilee and other parts of Judea that weren't in Jerusalem at that time, that heard the gospel, came to believe in Jesus, came to love Jesus. But the fact is, it was an awful small group that were believers when Jesus died, went to the cross and died. At this point, the life-giving word of Jesus, I should have made reference to John chapter 6, where Jesus speaks of his words being spirit and life. It's life-giving spirit. That's what his words are. His words give life to the dead. And again, it's not just the words that lift a corpse but the spiritually dead to give spiritual life to make him the bread of life that if he eat of me you will never hunger, you will never thirst to make of him living water to this part soul that drinks of the benefits of Jesus and and his blessings it's this life giving word that testifies of Jesus that brings about the work of a new creation and God's will and purpose is not just that 12 be added or that 120 be the fruit of the saving work of Jesus, but that a multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe would come to embrace the message of the gospel. And so it's in this, king, it's in this upper room you might say that the kingdom begins as a mustard seed. And these in the parable of chapter 13 of Matthew. And the mustard seed that's the smallest of all the seeds and yet when that mustard seed is planted it develops a plant so that the birds of the heavens come and make their nest in it and the kingdom of God begins in a small way but now it's planted in the world through the apostolic preaching so that the nations become the people of God through the preaching of the gospel it's in the preaching of the gospel folks it's in the power of a new creation brought about by that preaching that we find the greater works that Jesus is speaking of. It's the works that are produced through the power of the word. And it seems to me that that's verified. That idea is verified by the reason that Jesus gives as to why his disciples who believe in him would do these greater works look at what he says back to chapter 14 and verse 12 truly truly I say to you whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these because he has great faith is that what it says oh I'm sorry no it doesn't say because he has great faith Jesus isn't teaching faith healing he's not teaching miracles by faith He's speaking about the greater works than that, that these they will do not because they believe but because I go to the Father. It's because I go to the Father these works will be done in my name. Now think about that. What's Jesus doing going to the Father? Well he's going there through the cross isn't he? He's going to the Father's house to provide a place for the people through his death and resurrection and so it's through his death and resurrection greater works are performed it's through the death and resurrection we have a gospel to proclaim it's through the death and resurrection we have a salvation that's been provided it's through the message of a crucified and risen redeemer through the power of that message God saves those that believe but also in his going to the father he's going to go on in verse 16 and say these words he's going to say and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive I'm going to the father how you can do these greater works not because you believe a whole bunch. It's not because you chin up the faith as hard as you can and you say to mount mountain, be removed. No. It's because I go to the Father. And if I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Well, what happens when the Holy Spirit is given by the risen Christ? What occurs? Well, the 120 in the upper room were given to speak of the mighty works of God in the Hebrew language. I'm just seeing if you're awake this morning. They don't speak in the Hebrew language. They speak the mighty works of God in the tongues of the nations represented by the pilgrims that came to Pentecost to worship. The people from all the regions that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2 again, Peter's quotation, when he explains what's going on, is the Holy Spirit's been given, he quotes Acts, Joel chapter 2, where God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Not just Jewish people, but all flesh. All the nations will see the salvation of God. And Jesus sends these people, these men in the upper room, greater works than these will they do, as he are, they are sent in the power of the Spirit to make disciples of the nations because Jesus has gone to the Father. Jesus is encouraging them of the great things that are to come. Hours from now they're going to be completely cast down. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be led away to the cross to be crucified. Their hearts are going to be downcast. But reverberating in their ears should have been the fact that God has a great future in store for us. Even though our eyes don't see it now. If they they believed in him, they believed his words, something unexpected will take place. Something unexpected is bound to take place. This is the word of the man who stilled the waters. This is the man, my wife and I listened to a newer rendition of the old hymn, the old song from the 60s. It got to the popular charts and was played on ABC radio and WMCA with the good guys. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters. Put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the seas. Take a look at yourself and you will look at others differently. Put your hand in the hand of the man of Galilee. But you know, you put your hand in the hand of the man of Galilee and you don't still the waters, but he did. He did. And then he's the worthy object of your trust and of your confidence. The Jesus that spoke these words is the Jesus who went to the cross to provide us a place in the Father's house. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the Father. He sent forth the Spirit. And the great work of the evangelization of the nations would begin to take place through these men. They were slow to catch on. God had to raise up a Paul for the first Gentile mission. But, you know, little bit by little bit, they were thrust out from their little conclaves in Jerusalem. And they went into the house of Cornel- household of Cornelius, the first Gentile, to receive the word of God. And before you know at least church history tells us, you had Thomas that went to India, and you had other disciples that went to other places, was it Mark that went down into Egypt... Uh, but church history tells us they covered the nations at least of the then world of the known world of the civilized world the gospel went forth nothing like that happened in the life of Jesus upon the earth it happens because he went to the father sending forth a spirit that the gospel mission would go forth in power to the world these are the works that are truly great not a healing of the body in which that same person that got healed five years ago was now sick and will die it's not the raising of a dead person who years later will die it's the impartation of eternal life the life of the age to come in the hearts and minds of people who come to embrace the gospel message and become as a result of that gospel message a new creation in which God restores all things. Now, the final thing to note is that Jesus not only says that they will do greater works, but he gives us them some indication as to how these greater works are to be performed. What, what is the manner in which the disciples are to, to, are to perform these greater works? You see, there's a relationship between these greater works and in the next words, that speak of the subject of prayer. He says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, there's a couple of things to be said about this universal um, invitation to ask whatever in my name. Is this whatever is clearly restricted but first of all, the nature of their mission it's is this, it's this gospel mission that Jesus is referring to. It's its success. It's the fact that it will not fail and it must not fail. Well, what are God's people to be doing so that the gospel mission will not fail? We're to pray. We're to live and labor in full dependence upon the living God. A full dependence upon the living God that's manifest in prayer. Jesus doesn't say, I'll give you the power, you'll do great works, and uh, go for it. No. He says, you'll do great works, but every step of the way you're going to be praying. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. The other thing that restricts what you're going to ask for it says the purpose of this asking is that the Father may be glorified in the Son I don't know necessarily that God's going to be glorified in the Son if any of you win the lottery I don't know that that's particularly of interest to God in terms of the glory of his name I mean, Here is something in which the great attributes of God are set forth in the lives of his people who faithfully and obediently and submissively and with full dependence upon his presence and upon his grace live out his will and purposes in labor and in ministry for the extension of the kingdom of God in the earth. But the point of it all is that prayer is that great requirement, that great need. If we're going to be doing the work of the Lord, everything should be bathed in a spirit of prayer. James says, you have not because you ask not. It's a searching text, isn't it? We complain about all that we don't have. We complain about the terrible nature of the church. And it's failure to be pro- prominent and effective. And so we'll turn to politicians to get us to our desired destination. I'm not sure that's the answer, folks. In fact, I know it's not. I know it's not. we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God you know we think of our nation as a nation bereft of a lot of gospel life and gospel power but you know there's a sense of which you almost think the spirit of God's moved on because there's other parts of the world in which it seems amazing things are happening there's more reformed churches in Brazil than in all the United States or maybe it's in Grand Rapids, Michigan I forgot which one, I was told anyway there's a lot of reformed churches in Grand Rapids, Michigan but Brazil is overflowing with churches that are hungering and thirsting for the gospel hungering and thirsting for teachers Remember years ago that we used to get letters from Keith Underhill that told us of the Rindeli tribe of Kenya that wanted teachers and preachers to come and settle among them. In the ensuing 30 years since we got those letters, the gospel has broken forth with such reviving power throughout the country of Kenya. Where they're sending out missionaries to other parts of the world. what God's doing in the Ivory Coast what God's doing in Zambia incredible you say how in the world did that happen well, I'll tell you I have a little bit of insight in the matter I witnessed it with my own eyes We had a man who came into our area to do some construction a few years back he came and he worshipped with us on a couple of occasions but he didn't speak English He only spoke Portuguese, and uh, we managed to converse just a bit. But one of the things he wanted wanted to do is he wanted to know if I would make this building available to him because he wanted to come here and pray. He said uh, where he was living, just too much noise. He wanted to come here and pray. So I said, well, you know, after evening service, you're most welcome to come. I'll give you the whole sanctuary. And You know, I sat out there listening to a guy agonizing in the presence of God in Portuguese. For a full hour he prayed. For a full hour he prayed. And I think if he wasn't conscious that I wanted to go home, he would have stayed probably more. I tried that the next day. I came into the building. I nailed down right where Andrew was sitting. I said, Lord... I'm going to pray for one hour I could not do it I could not do it I got to about 25 minutes and I had nothing more to say nothing more to pray for and that's not because there's not more to pray for it's just the paucity of my own prayer life the weakness of my own prayer life I tell you that's an example of what Christians in Brazil are doing There's no reason to wonder why the Spirit of God is moving in the way that it has in that country because Jesus says if you ask anything in my name... I will do it. Lord, we want to do greater works than you. We want to see the kingdom of God thriving and extending and powerful and mighty and efficacious. We want to see lives transformed. We want to see marriages strengthened. We want to see children rise up for the next generation to serve you. Yeah, we want that. But what are we willing to do to get it? We want to give ourselves to the sort of prayer that that man gave himself to, that the people in Brazil evidently taught him to do? Can't get people to prayer meetings any longer. People are just giving up. Most churches don't have prayer meetings anymore. It's not like, well, well, people are praying in other places with other people. Well, if they were, that's, that's great, that's wonderful. You, know, you you get absent yourself from prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and I have no criticism if you find some time somewhere else to meet with a group of Christians and pray. But I'm not, I'm not sure that's being done. And again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not scolding anybody. I'm just saying that's the culture in which we're living. We're just not doing the sort of things it seems to me that they were doing in the early church when the church met continually to hear apostolic teaching and had fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think don't complain. Don't complain. If you're not seeing what you think of the greater works we should be saying, if we're not prepared to do the things we need to be doing to get there. And Jesus doesn't leave it up for question. How, Lord, are we gonna do the greater works than these? Because you're going to the Father? He answers it. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do the Father may be glorified in the Son again you see the picture of the prayers of the people of God being Trinitarian prayers he asked the Father that the Father would be glorified in the Son and you ask in his name he asked by the authority of of Jesus in whose name we approach the Father that's the biblical picture of the life of prayer, we approach the Father in the name of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18 through one spirit we all have access to the Father through him through him great picture of prayers of the people of God that are expressly Trinitarian and then it's interesting that you pray to the Father in his name and Jesus says I will do it I don't say the Father will do it, he says I will do it Again, we know that where the Father works, or the Son works, the Father and the Son are both present. The united operations of the persons of the Trinity come into play even there. Well, in conclusion, in conclusion, what should we say to these things? Well, let me just say, first of all, the Jesus' instruction to his disciples and to us is to bring us should bring us to the conviction that the work of the church is not an effort at self-pleasing self-aggrandizement our glory, our needs our interests, our concerns are paramount I fear that's what most of modern day Christianity takes as an assumption the church exists for whatever I want whatever I need but here's a picture of the promoting of the work of God we're not to be promoting ourselves or preaching ourselves Paul says but Christ Jesus as Lord and it's the glory of the triune God that's to be at the forefront of all of our efforts of all of our endeavors of all of our labors it's the end of all of our works these greater works are not the works of making us famous and making us influential and look at us and what we are and what we do they're the greater works of service they're the greater works of ministry to others ministering the word of God into the lives and consciences of others now we're under no illusion that if we preach the word everyone's going to believe Paul speaks of those that are perishing but to those who are saved the gospel is the power of God for salvation it's just odor or a scent, a perfume of life unto life. And our hope and confidence is, is that the gospel is the power of God. Unto salvation. And through the ministry of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the setting forth of the words of God, the works of God will be performed. And the works of God will be performed powerfully and savingly. Yes, in our lives, but also in the lives of others. And then we ought to be convinced from this passage that prayer is simply central to what God is doing in the world. Without prayer, nothing is achieved. And again, I think we see a languishing church where prayer is not something that is made paramount. And... I guess I would just say one final thing is if we really have a sense of what our Lord is saying that the works of God are the works of life giving power that comes through his, work, his words that if we we are a people of, of proclamation if we are a people of prayer both together both together now, I, I'm convinced we excel in proclamation but we're not doing too good in prayer but if we had both of them together in some measure of growing equal, equal mix we can live confidently in hope of seeing the greater works of God abounding to the glory of God in our day that we, we can't say well the culture's too hardened and the people of the world are just too far gone that's an excuse it's just not real Nothing was so hardened in first century Rome. And the gospel came in the midst of that wicked pagan culture. And God left his, led his servants in triumphal procession. And says, the victory belongs to me. I'm going to conquer. The whole Western world was impacted upon by Christianity when Christians proclaimed and Christians prayed as Christians should so this is not a passage that tells us look for miracles and pray for miracles this is a passage that tells us that the works of God are great because the word of God is multiplied and where the word of God is multiplied and the prayers of the saints are multiplied the number of disciples will be multiplied and the work of the church will flourish in a lost and a needy world let's pray together father we think of the prophet Habakkuk he living in times that were certainly not encouraging in the least the Chaldean armies that were threatening to come and take everything in its path the violence that proliferated in that culture as well as in our own. And yet, he called upon your name and cried to you that you would revive your work in the midst of the years, that in wrath you would remember mercy. And Father, that would be our cry to you this morning as well, that, Father, you'd first revive your work in us, you'd revive your work by intensifying in our own soul's a confidence and a hope in the gospel that will not just allow excuses to keep us from our duty to pray for the furtherance of the kingdom of your grace to be actively involved in bearing witness to the kingdom and to the king and that will not allow ourselves to cease to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven We ask you Lord to make us to be in the 21st century like the Christians of the 1st century making these things preeminent in our thinking and in our practices. Make us to be a people who pray who proclaim and see your mighty works in and through a church alive to the things of the gospel. So we ask you to Hear our prayers and we ask you to bless your people as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.